Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 21. We are confronted with words from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ which open up a huge subject in regard to the future, prophecy concerning the end time. Now whenever you talk about the prophecies concerning the end time, you're talking about a vast, vast theme. There are Old Testament books that sweep us into the end times written by the prophets of old. There are New Testament messages given by our Lord that look to the end times. There are writings by the writers of the epistles in the New Testament that look to the end of the age. And then there is the massive book of Revelation which gives a series of visions that John the Apostle received while in exile on the island of Patmos that have to do with the end of human history. All of that simply to say in a general sense, the end of human history has already been written. There are no surprises to God and there are no surprises to those who understand what God has revealed. God has given us in His Word an understanding of the end if we take the Scripture at face value. And in fact, in Luke 21, the Lord Jesus Himself is giving a message, a sermon to His disciples on the future. And it comes at a most ironic moment. Precisely during the week when He will be crucified, which is just a few hours away, it is on the Wednesday of that Passion Week and He will die on Friday. It is on the Wednesday when the people of Israel and the leaders of Israel have finally determined that He is in fact not the Messiah, when they have determined that He is not from God, He is certainly not God. You can say that it is at the very high point of their rejection of Jesus Christ that He walks out of the temple with His disciples following, sits down on the Mount of Olives and tells them the future. What an irony that is. When the populace and the leaders have determined that He is not God, He then immediately does what only God can do, describes the future. In fact, He describes the future in a sweeping fashion through all of remaining history to the final culmination which will be His own return in Second Coming glory, which becomes the pinnacle of this message, His Second Coming spoken of in verse 27 of Luke 21. Here is that irony that the one they have determined does not represent God, is not God, does not know God, is in fact satanic, is the one who can not only tell the future but the one who having created the world and sustaining the world will be the very one to write its history and bring it to its consummation. And what our Lord says about the future? is horrendous. According to the Lord Jesus, the future for this world and its inhabitants is very, very tragic. It is much worse than any environmentalist imagines. 
It is much worse than any scientist could ever imagine in any scheme that he could concoct on the basis of select information. It is far worse than any educator could imagine, any politician could imagine, or any religious leader could imagine. We are not headed toward some humanly engineered utopia. We are not on the way to an age of peace and tranquility. It's hard living in this world today, and it's getting harder, and it will continue until it becomes so hard that it will be worse than it's ever been. All history has been a battle against the effects of sin and the effects of the curse on humanity and on creation brought by God because of sin. Jesus said, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again, I'm going to pay the penalty for sin, and then I'm going away. And while I'm gone, things will get worse. He says in verse 8 in this message, see to it that you be not misled. Many will come in My name saying, I am He, and the time is at hand to not go after them. First thing we talked about is, Jesus says in the period between His first and second coming, the period in which we now live, there will be dominating deception, deception, a false Christianity that will outstrip the real Christianity. There will be more false Christians than true ones. There will be more false representatives of Jesus Christ than true representatives of Jesus Christ, and they will accumulate and escalate until finally the last form of Christian apostasy takes shape in the time to come called the tribulation. And we looked at that. In the time of the tribulation, yet to come right before Jesus returns, there will be a flurry of false messiahs and false prophets plying their deception across the globe. So this is an age characterized by increasing, escalating religious deception. This is true. We all know it. We all see it. Secondly, our Lord said, disaster is to be expected. Verse 9, you'll hear of wars and disturbances. He defines them further in verses 10 and 11. The wars and disturbances involve nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Global war and conflict will characterize this time. There will also be natural disasters, great earthquakes, various plagues, famines terrors which would compass everything that we talked about such as firestorms and tsunamis and tidal waves and any other volcanic eruption, etc., etc., not included in earthquakes, famines and plagues. And there will be great signs from heaven, hurricanes, tornadoes, etc., etc., etc. And the world will be characterized then by religious deception and by natural disaster. And we have seen that. It is true. It is the way it is in the world. And as the earth winds down, as the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy that all things are breaking down comes to its fulfillment, things disintegrate, and this world becomes more susceptible to these kinds of disasters and tragedies. Thirdly, he says, the distress of persecution will come. Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you, you who profess to follow Me. They will persecute you, delivering you to synagogues and prisons. That was the Jewish persecution, bringing you before kings and governors. That's the Gentile persecution, all for My name's sake. 
It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you an utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute, but you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all on account of My name. And I told you that some have counted as many as seventy million professing Christians having been martyred since Jesus said these words until now. This period of time between the two comings of Christ, characterized by religious deception, by natural catastrophe and disaster, and by persecution of the people of God. These are the realities of history. They are facts of history. Jesus said this was how it would be, and this is exactly how it would be and how it is. And of course, you remember the disciples expected the Messiah to come and set up the kingdom. This is very opposite what they expected. They had no idea of two comings with an interval in between. Jesus had to show them that, tell them that, and then actually go back to heaven in His ascension, and we wait for Him to return. But this is life in our world until He comes. And it's not getting better, it is getting worse. And as I pointed out to you when we went through those verses, and we've already gone through verses 8 through 19, the worst form of religious deception comes in the last seven years and the last three and a half in particular before Christ returns to set up His kingdom and to judge. The worst natural catastrophes happen in that same period of time yet in the future, and the worst form of persecution as well. So these things at their maximum level will occur in the time known as the time of tribulation. In fact, that is precisely what our Lord said in this same message. Remember now, the words that, that Luke records are not all that Jesus said on this occasion on the Mount of Olives when He spoke of His return and the time in between. Mark 13 records His words, and so does Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, we are reminded that there will be a time that is worse than any time in the history of the world. There has never been a time like the time of tribulation that is to come in the past, and there never will be a time like it in the future. It is the worst of all times. Verse 21, Matthew 24, there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And in that time, all of these things, deception, disaster, and persecution reach their pinnacle. Now our Lord also says that when they begin, they are the beginning of birth pains. Matthew 24, 8, the beginning of birth pains. Birth pains is a good illustration to talk about this progression because everybody understands birth pains. There's an event coming, the birth of a child. It's an event that occurs in a moment in time. Prior to that event, there are escalating, increasing pains. It's a perfect illustration. Jesus is saying that when He goes, these things will begin to happen. These are the very early, almost false birth pains. As you get nearer to the return of Christ, the birth pains will be real. They will grow more intense and more intense and more intense at the very end. For example, when you look at the time of the tribulation, 
in the book of Revelation. It is laid out under seven seals. There's a scroll that is rolled and then sealed and rolled and then sealed and rolled and then sealed. So it's sealed seven times. It's the way they sealed a will. It's the title deed to the earth. Christ is going to take the title deed to the earth, unroll it, take back the earth from the usurper, Satan. Every time He breaks a seal, another judgment is released. So you have the seven seal judgments. When He opens the seventh seal, which is the last at the end of the period of seven years, out of that seventh seal comes seven trumpet blasts. Those are more rapid fire. They all occur at the time of the seventh seal, which is right at the end. So you have seven trumpet judgments that come right at the end. Out of the seventh trumpet come seven bowls that are poured out in judgment, and they are even more rapid-fire than the trumpets. So you have that same birth pain intensity escalating in the imagery of seven seals over a period of seven years, seven trumpets over a period of months, and seven bowls over a period of days and hours. And then at the end of the bowl judgments, all judgments are finished. Christ comes, judges the ungodly, and sets up His earthly kingdom. The birth pains then give us the idea you have escalating intensity until the very end when the pains become fierce leading up to the very event itself. These final pains, as I just mentioned, are described in the book of Revelation. You see in Revelation plagues, the things that Jesus talked about, famines, earthquakes, wars, false messiahs false prophets, deadly persecution of believers. You see all of that in the book of Revelation at an intensity and a level that the world has never, ever experienced or will experience. And when you begin to see those, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 33, when you begin to see them at that level, at that intensity, when you see these things, know Matthew 24, 33, that He is near, that He is near. We haven't begun to see those yet. We know what those will look like because they're laid out in detail in the book of Revelation. In Matthew 24, 21, Jesus said there will be a great tribulation. There is tribulation now. In this world you shall have tribulation, John 16, 33. But there is coming a great tribulation that describes that last seven years and most particularly the last three and a half of the last seven. Wickedness will then be at an all-time high and it will be expressed openly and without restraint. The Holy Spirit who restrains evil in the world will step aside and let evil run rampant. Satan will be given the privilege of releasing demons who are bound in hell so that they cannot escape, but they will be released to run rampant over the world in one last satanic dash against God and Christ. At the same time that you have sin running amok and demons running free, you have God's wrath systematically released with deadly force on the entire world and God's wrath even using sinners and demons for His own purposes. At the same time, you have the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth. 
by 144,000 converted Jews, 12,000 out of each tribe, Revelation says, by two witnesses who literally die in the view of the whole world and rise from the dead and preach the gospel from Jerusalem. They'll be seen, no doubt, by satellite television all over the world. Then you have an angel flying in heaven preaching the gospel in the sky so that all the world will be able to hear. So it'll be the worst of times, and yet there is a sense in which it'll be the best of times because that preaching of the gospel by the witnesses, the two witnesses, the 144,000, and by all the people who are saved from every tongue and tribe and nation will cause a great revival, and multitudes will be converted to Christ during that time. And so in that time of great tribulation, there will come an escalation of judgment that will make it clear that you are at the end. That is why in the parallel passage in Matthew 24 and the parallel passage in Mark 13, both Mark and Matthew inject into the words of Jesus a little sentence, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. Some people think that prophetic literature is written to make things incomprehensible. That prophetic literature is designed to create mystery and confusion. Not at all. Let the reader understand. You read what this says and you look at what is happening. I can read what Jesus said about wars, nations and kingdoms going against each other through human history, false forms of Christianity, false messiahs, false prophets. I read about the persecution of believers and I say, I understand. I see it. That's history. That's reality. That's the way it is. And in the future when these things reach the most intense level of their agonies, their birth pains, all you have to do is read the Scripture and you will know exactly what is going on. Those words are injected by the writer because the writer of Matthew and the writer of Mark understands that people in the future will be reading this. It doesn't say, let the hearer understand. That's not something Jesus said to His disciples at the time, but it's something that the Spirit-inspired author says to the future generations who are looking at history and wondering what's going on, and He says, let the reader understand. You'll see this unfold before your very eyes. At that time, Matthew 24 says, when these judgments are released, when iniquity runs rampant, when believers are persecuted. And by the way, when a revival is going on across the world, people are being saved. Israel is, will be saved at that time. There will be a great revival in the city of Jerusalem, Revelation 11. There will be 144,000 Jews converted, identified in Revelation 7 and 14. Multitudes from the whole world are identified in Revelation 5. Satan will rebel against that and bring about the greatest persecution in history. That persecution will cause some people to defect. There will be professing false believers in that period who will defect under the heat of persecution, others who will defect under the influence of lawlessness. Matthew 24, Jesus said, because of lawlessness or iniquity, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, they won't want to abandon their sin. So there will be false believers even at that time who will defect, but the true believers will endure as we remember from last time, verse 19, by your endurance you will gain your lives. Now how will the readers of the future know when this comes? How will they know that Jesus is coming soon? 
What sign? That's what started all this. Remember that? Back in verse 7. What is the sign when the end is coming? What is the sign of Your coming, as Matthew puts it? What is the sign of the end of the age? What is the sign? What should we look for to know that it's going to happen? Of course, they thought it would happen then, soon. We're two thousand years later, it hasn't happened. Christ hasn't established His kingdom. What, what is there to look for? For that generation that's alive at the very end, what should they look for? What sign? How do you know when you're getting to the end? Well, just imagine that you're living in the future, described in the book of Revelation, described by Daniel, described by our Lord here. You're living in the future. Natural disasters are at a fever pitch far beyond anything that humanity has ever experienced. Persecution of the people of God is at its maximum level. Believers are being slaughtered. There is um, persecution the likes of which the world has never seen. At the same time, there is false religion abounding under the leadership of the Antichrist. It's a very hard world. It will be a world more difficult to live in than any point in human history. And those true believers are going to be the, like the martyrs under the altar saying, how long, O Lord, how long, how long is this going to go on? Because this is way more stress than we can handle. How can we possibly know when the end is going to come? If you think it's important now, hey, how important will it be then? I'm having a hard time convincing people that it's important now because they're so comfortable. It's hard to get a people stirred up about the return of Jesus Christ because they're not living in terror. In that day, when the world is living in a condition of terror, how are they going to know that the end is near? The answer to that comes in verses 20 to 24, and that's our text. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. That's the key. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. You say, wait, wait, wait. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies? Um, that's a very familiar sight. That has been a familiar sight for a very, very long time. Certainly forty years after Jesus said this in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was surrounded by the Roman army who laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, which finally fell in 70 A.D. And when uh, the city of Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D., people did flee into the mountains. Thousands of them, thousands of them fled into the mountains. Many more traveled as refugees to various parts of the world. They were horrible days. Titus Vespasian, son of the emperor Vespasian, came, attacked the city and killed people until Josephus says he had no more people to kill and no more people to plunder. And then Caesar sent orders to demolish the whole city, flatten it, demolish and flatten the temple, and just leave a portion of the wall, the city wall, and some towers as a testimony to the power of Rome so that people would know that it was once such a formidable place, evidenced by the greatness of the wall and the towers that was left, and this would be a testimony to Rome's great power. But apart from leaving that, Josephus says there was not enough left of the city to make those that came after believe that it had ever been an inhabited place. Is that what our Lord is talking about? Was He talking about 70 A.D. here? I don't think so. Keep reading. 
Verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That happened then. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. That happened. Let those who are in the country not enter the city, and they didn't. Then verse 22, because these are the days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Wait a minute here. That language does not lend itself to a 70 A.D. interpretation. These are not the days of vengeance. These are not the events which cause things which have been written to all be fulfilled. The days of vengeance, just take that phrase. That is an Old Testament expression used to describe the coming time of tribulation. It is an Old Testament expression to speak of divine vengeance from God in the end time, the time of Jacob's trouble. You read about the days of vengeance in Isaiah 34, 35, 61, 63. Daniel 12, 1 speaks of the days of vengeance. Hosea 9, Micah 5, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14. You're talking here about the final end when God's final vengeance falls on the ungodly and on human history. The days of vengeance when all things which are written become fulfilled. That's a sweeping statement, sweeping statement. When all things which are written become fulfilled. This is far more than what happened in 70 A.D. What are we talking about here? What, what event are we talking about here? Well, some might suggest um, the Middle Ages. Some would come along and say, uh, well, the Jews were um, under siege during the Middle Ages, the first of the Crusades, 1095. The first of the Crusades, they came sacked Jerusalem, and from then to the 1500s, control over the city of Jerusalem changed many, many times until finally Suleiman, the magnificent, the great Ottoman sultan in the early 1500s, conquered Jerusalem. And if you were to go there today, the walls that you see today, the stone walls, the, the battlements encircling the old city of Jerusalem belong to the 16th century time of Suleiman, a visible reminder that Jerusalem has been surrounded by armies through its history. Right there, there's almost 500 years of it. But you couldn't call any of those events during that period of time in the Middle Ages the days of divine vengeance and the fulfillment of everything that has been written. Well, even today someone might say Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, not, um, not that they are against the edges of the city wall, but there are armies in constant readiness for war surrounding Israel all the time. Ever since they came back in 1948, declared themselves a state, it was immediately after that that a war of independence left the city of Jerusalem divided. Jordan controlling the old city, including the Temple Mount and most of the historic sites. And that only lasted for about twenty years till 1967. You remember the Six Days War? In the Six Days War, Israel forces captured the old city, reunified all of Jerusalem. The city came under Jewish control for the first time in centuries. However, more than thirty, forty years later now, 
Jerusalem is still surrounded by enemies. They are at the heart of an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Arab leaders worldwide insisting that that land and that city belongs to them and that they have from God, Allah, a mandate to exterminate the Jews. Jerusalem has been surrounded by armies. It is surrounded by armies in a figurative sense right now. Its political position, as you know, in the Middle East is so volatile that at any moment in time Israel could be attacked by any of these massive enemies that surround it. Is that what this is talking about? Are we talking about now? Is this it? Are we there? Are we seeing the fulfillment of this prophecy and that Jerusalem is surrounded by all these Arab nations who are armed to the teeth and gaining greater weaponry, including nuclear weapons, to come against them? Is that it? No. No, that's, that's not it. You say, well, what is He talking about? We have to go to Matthew to answer the question. Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew records that our Lord said something even more specific. Our Lord said something even more specific. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's the sign. That's the sign that the great part of the tribulation is to begin. That's the sign that the worst is coming and it's the darkest darkness before the dawn. And here He takes it a step further. Verse 15, Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. And here's where that phrase is. Let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and He goes through the same series of warnings to get out of the place. If you're on the housetop, don't even go down inside to get your belongings. If you're in a field, don't go back to get your coat. And woe to those who are pregnant, those who nurse babies, even as we saw recorded in Luke, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. There will be a great tribulation. What launches the great tribulation at the midpoint of the seven years, the great tribulation is the last half, and Daniel points this out even by numbering the days in chapter 12, as the book of Revelation numbers the days. What triggers the last half, the worst half, just prior to Christ's return, what launches that great tribulation? is when the armies surround Jerusalem and there is the committing of what Daniel calls the abomination of desolation, the abomination of desolation. Jesus is very specific. Jesus then relates Daniel's prophecy of the abomination of desolation to the end time. When you see the abomination of desolation, you know that's the time. That's the end time. Right after that, verse 29, comes the tribulation, its final form. The sun is dark and the moon doesn't give its light. The stars fall. Then the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky. This is all eschatological. This is all in the last days. So our Lord is talking about a period in the end of history when the armies encamp around Jerusalem. And they encamp around Jerusalem with the purpose of desolation. That, that's simply a word that means to ruin, to destroy. They camp around Jerusalem with a view 
to coming in and creating desolation. What specific desolation? The abomination of desolation, says Matthew. And so he fills out our Lord's words. Just exactly what is an abomination? It is a blasphemy. It is a blasphemy. That's the meaning of the word. There is committed at this time a blasphemy. In fact, an abomination to God is any act of idolatry, anything that blasphemes His name, His honor, His worship, His glory, His place. Certainly spiritual uncleanness is a blasphemy and an abomination. Certainly immorality of any kind, unrighteousness is an abomination. But in particular, idolatry is an abomination. So we have here then in the end time the prophecy of nations surrounding Jerusalem and inside Jerusalem there is committed an abomination of desolation which is spoken of by Daniel. Let's go to Daniel 9.27 and see what it is. And here's our great challenge. I can't possibly take you through all of this on this occasion. I suggest to you if you have further interest, get some of the material on Daniel, read the sections in the study Bible, get the CD on Daniel 9.27 and you will get a greater insight into the abomination of desolation or study the material from Matthew 24.15 where the abomination of desolation is referred to. I have messages on that as well as the Matthew commentary with an extensive section on that. There's also a chapter in the book, The Second Coming which deals with this as well. But look at 9.27 in Daniel, and He will make a firm covenant, talking about the Antichrist. In the end time there will come the final Antichrist, the final false Messiah, the final false prophet. And He will make a covenant, firm covenant with the many for one week. Well, what does that mean? He makes a covenant or a pact with Israel. He becomes the protector of Israel. Amazing. They, uh, they are still in unbelief when the tribulation begins. The church has been raptured, now the tribulation begins, Israel is still in unbelief. The Antichrist comes along, uh, he offers himself as the protector of Israel because Israel is sitting in a still very, very hostile world. So the Antichrist comes along, offers himself as the protector of Israel. They make a covenant with him for a week in the middle of the week. It's a week of years, by the way, as seventy weeks of Daniel means seventy periods of seven years. And this, the detail of this is very important in prophecy. The first sixty-nine years were, were completed when Jesus was, was crucified. There's one week left to go, the seventieth week in the future. During that week there is a covenant made with the Jews and Antichrist, He becomes their protector. However, in the middle of the week He puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. What that means is the temple will be rebuilt or some form. They'll be offering sacrifices again. Judaism will be restored to some place in that time. The Antichrist will offer Himself as the protector of Israel. He's not labeled the Antichrist. He's a man of peace, a leader, a great world leader of peace, very, very possibly out of the Roman Catholic system. Uh, he comes in, sets up some kind of pact with them, becomes their protector. However, in the middle of the week puts a stop to their offerings, their sacrifices, and creates what is called the abomination which makes desolate. 
This is what our Lord is referring to. In the middle of the last seven years of human history before the Lord's return, the Antichrist pact is violated in the middle by something the Antichrist does to create an abomination, an abomination that produces destruction and desolation. This is the abomination of desolation. What is it? Ah, the New Testament makes it uh, clear what it is. The New Testament tells us that the Antichrist in the middle of the week will go into the holy place in the temple and set up an idol of himself and demand that the entire world worship him. That is an abomination to God, an abomination to God. Scripture talks about this very specifically, and I'll refer to that in a moment. But there's another component, and I'm going to try to hurry and give this to you. We're looking eschatologically at the future, at the end time. The Antichrist makes a pact, breaks it in the middle, breaks it by setting up an idol of himself in the middle of the holy place in Jerusalem, trying to create a world religion, calls the whole world to worship him. Obviously, this is Satan worship at its pinnacle in its final form. All the nations of the world are encamped around. Jerusalem is the focal point of everything, and this idol is set up in the holy place. Is there anything like that in human history? Is there anything that you could look at it would be a preview of that kind of behavior? Yes, there is. In the same prophecy of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 11, you have to study it on your own. Throughout chapter 11, you have the history of a particular ruler, a ruler that but has been well known to students of history and Scripture as Antiochus. Antiochus, one of the major Seleucid kings, that is, he came from Syria. The powerful kings um, in, in uh, Daniel 11 are the king of the south, the Ptolemies from Egypt, and the king of the north, the Seleucids from Syria that bordered Israel. In Daniel chapter 11, the Seleucid king is called a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue." This is referring to Antiochus IV, who was a Seleucid. Now you need to know just a little bit about this particular guy, and I can't take you into a whole lot of detail. He came in the third century. Daniel prophesies in the sixth century. He says there's going to be a king, and he gives all kinds of details about him and he comes three centuries later. He offers himself as the protector of Israel. He's from Syria in the north. He will protect Israel from the south. He will protect Israel from the Egyptians, the Ptolemies in Egypt. That's going to be his commitment. He pretends to be the defender of Jerusalem. So he goes to war. This is what Daniel said he would do, and history said it's exactly what he did. Daniel said he would go to war against Egypt. He would then plunder Egypt, take all the spoils of Egypt, and buy influence in Israel. That's why in Daniel 11:24 says, He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers disperse among them, plunder, spoil, and riches, devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So what he comes to do is bribe them, buys his way in as the protector of Israel by giving them some of the plunder he stole when he conquered Egypt. He goes back. He is to go back and make a final devastation of Egypt. That was, that was Antiochus' plan in the year 168. 
History says he was going to Egypt to make a final plunder of Egypt. He had already defeated Egypt. He had already made his alliance with Israel. It came to pass three centuries after Daniel said it would, exactly as he said it would. On his way to Egypt, he receives orders from Rome via Cyprus because the Roman fleet was stationed at Cyprus. That's very important. The Roman fleet is anchored at Cyprus. The word comes to him. Caesar says, do not make war against the Ptolemies. Do not make war against Egypt. He is humiliated. He is angry. He is infuriated. So he withdraws from Egypt and he heads back to Syria. He is so mad that he decides to vent his rage. He's so mad he needs to kill somebody. So in passing, he decides to kill the Jews. As he goes north, he stops at Jerusalem. This is what Daniel said, Daniel 11.30, ships from Cyprus shall come against him, therefore he shall be angry, return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. The word came from Cyprus to him by ship, not to go to Egypt, but to go back to Syria. And Daniel knew that three centuries before it happened because God revealed it to him. He stops and he's going to sack Jerusalem. He waits until the Sabbath when he knows the people will be most vulnerable, orders an army of 250,000 soldiers to slaughter the Jews. Now remember, he's been their protector and their benefactor. He met with very little resistance. He then took control, set Jewish apostates, defectors from Judaism, enemies of Israel's covenant with Jehovah. He set them in all the positions of power in the city. Daniel said he would do that. Daniel 11.30, he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Daniel said he would put apostates in places of power. He did. He was trying to set up a thoroughly new religion of paganism. He demanded no more sacrifices be made to God. He demanded that all sacrifices be made to idols. The Sabbath was to be profaned. All laws of Judaism, both biblical and traditional, were to be eliminated. He wanted one people, one religion, just like Daniel said he would. And he was to be the object of everyone's worship. He called himself Epiphanes the Great One. The people called him Epimenes the Madman. And at that time when he took power there, this is what he did. It says in, in the history of the Maccabees, the fifteenth day of the month, Kis month Kislev, hundred and forty and fifth year, he set up the abomination of desolation on the altar. You know what he did? We know. History says. He went into the holy place where the Jewish altar of sacrifice was, where God was being worshipped, and He put an image of Zeus on top of the altar where offerings were made to Jehovah. And He did exactly that. He, he abominated the holy place, and that brought desolation. Daniel 11.31, it says, there he committed the abomination of desolation. So you have a wonderful picture in Daniel. You have an illustration of someone in the third century, or actually 168. You have an illustration of this individual just two centuries before the Lord who abominates the holy place and is a picture of the future 
abomination of desolation at the end time. It is Daniel 11, by the way, that refers to Antiochus, but the other abomination of desolation in 927 can't refer to Antiochus because it refers to the very end of all history in the final seven years before the Lord establishes His kingdom. There's a further reference to it in Daniel chapter 12 as well, which is looking at the end-time abomination of desolation. So in a, in a pattern that is pretty, pretty frequent in prophetic literature, you have a future prophecy illustrated in a near prophecy. Antiochus becomes an illustration of what the final Antichrist will do. And so we know Daniel 9.27 is referring to the future. Go back to Luke 21 because that's what Jesus refers it to. Jesus is interpreting Daniel. And when our Lord says, as He does in Matthew 24, this is that which was written by Daniel the prophet concerning the abomination of desolation, we know it's connected to the time of His return. It's connected in Luke 21 to when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that the desolation is at hand. It's that same desolation. So the Lord sees this as an eschatological event. Yes, Jerusalem has been surrounded by armies throughout its history. There have even been a couple of times uh, through history when the temple have been, ha has been desecrated, of course, and abominated, the place where God is supposed to be worshipped there. There's that most notable time laid out in Daniel 11 and fulfilled in history by Antiochus where a kind of abomination of desolation happened and uh, he did things that were absolutely atrocious. Uh, the story of what he did beyond what I told you is that he slaughtered a pig on the altar and stuffed pork down the mouths of the priests as a way to desecrate the place and desecrate them as well. And so the picture that, of what he did is only a preview of what that final Antichrist will do. And if you ask just exactly what will the final Antichrist do? Revelation 13 says, here's His abomination. In His vision was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. He sets up His image in the temple in the holy place, His idol. There was power given to Him that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed, Revelation 13:15. So He doesn't set up an altar of Zeus, He sets up an idol of Himself. Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 with these words. The Apostle Paul says this, the man of sin when he's revealed, that's the Antichrist, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. That's the final abomination. That's, that's what Antiochus did in a preview of the final abomination. So let the reader understand. When you see in human history a world leader at the end of the age who makes a pact of protection with Israel to protect them, and in the middle of that period of protection, while judgments are beginning to move that 
are unlike anything in the history of the world, and you see the armies of the world surrounding Jerusalem to put an end to Israel. And you see this Antichrist going into the holy place, putting up an idol of himself to establish one world religion, calling the whole world to worship him. You know that the coming of Christ is near, is near. He will turn against Israel whom He has feigned to protect. He will call the armies of the world to come and they will amass in Israel from the city of Jerusalem clear north to the plain of Megiddo. All these forces sent, set against God and against Israel and He will then desecrate the holy place and this will trigger the return and the judgment of Christ who will destroy all the armies of the world, all the ungodly and unrighteous, and establish His kingdom." Now back to our text of Luke 21 quickly. When this happens, these are the days of vengeance when all things written are to be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and those who nurse labor in those days. Why does He want everybody to run? Why does He want them to flee? Well, in a sense it's metaphoric, get out, the disaster is going to be so horrible you don't want to experience the horror of what's going to happen in that place when Antichrist descends on that and starts the massacre that's going to be going on there. But there's another element to it and it is this, that this is the end of evangelism. For those who are believers, He doesn't say endure persecution, endure suffering, take it, don't worry if you're arrested, don't worry if you're incarcerated. Don't worry if you're martyred, it'll fall out to be a testimony to the goodness of the gospel and you'll make a good confession. There's no more evangelism. It's over. It is done. Just leave. God wants to protect and will protect certain of His people in order to enter into the millennial earthly kingdom. Time to get out. It's going to be more difficult for pregnant women and women who have nursing babies. Obviously they can't move as fast. They're encumbered. There will be great distress upon the earth and wrath to this people. It'll be the wrath of Satan, but it'll be executing the wrath of God. They will fall by the edge of the sword. There will be a massacre led captive into all the nations. This happens at the midpoint. For the final three and a half years, the people who aren't slaughtered are going to be sent all over the world as we also read in Matthew 24. Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles only until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. What is the times of the Gentiles? It's a period of time from 586 B.C. when Israel first went into captivity until the end of the tribulation when Christ comes to establish His kingdom. Through this whole time, they have been to one degree or another under the attack, the oppression, the influence of Gentiles. But the times of the Gentiles will end. It didn't end in 70 A.D. So this can't refer to that. It didn't end in 160s, so this can't refer to that. The end of the times of the Gentiles is concurrent with the days of vengeance of God when all things will be finally fulfilled. This is the future of the world. The Old Testament understood this. The Old Testament prophets said it. Let me close with this, Zechariah 12. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. 
Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around it. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah, as I said, all the way through that land. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike. That's not talking about anything that happened in 70 A.D. The Lord didn't strike in 70 A.D. That's not happening either in the time of Antiochus. This siege of Jerusalem is the very one our Lord is referring to, same one Zechariah spoke of. Zechariah 14, he talks of it again. I will gather, verse 2, all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished. That's why you want to run. Half of the city exiled, the rest will not be cut off from the city. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in a day of battle. That great conflict at the end is where the Lord comes down and brings the final victory. That didn't happen 70 A.D., didn't happen in Antiochus' day. It'll happen in that day. So when you look at the history of the world and you understand what Jesus is saying, He laid it all out laid out just exactly how it would go, that it would escalate, that it would get worse, that it would have its final form in the horrors of the time of tribulation described in the book of Revelation. The trigger event to let people know that the end is near is the armies of the world gathering against Jerusalem after a feigned protector has been uh, s sort of accepted as the one to defend them and keep them safe. He turns on them. He goes in, desecrates the temple, sets up an idol of Himself, wants the whole world to worship Him, have one world religion, when obviously they won't respond to that, both Jews uh, who have been converted to Christ and who have not. At that particular point, He turns on them, a massacre begins, a massacre takes place, followed by another massacre by the returning Christ. But that's the subject for next time. Father, this is so weighty and so amazing that You have given us all this truth and barely contain it, like drinking from a fire hose to take it all in. And there's so much more to be said throughout the writings of Daniel in great, great careful detail and also throughout the writings of the New Testament in the words of our Lord and in the words of... John, who received visions of the end. Lord, help us to understand that You've given this to us, that we might be warned, that we might understand the way the world is going, that we might be safe from these horrors because our lives are hidden with Christ in God. I pray, Lord, that even today You will draw to Yourself sinners who will be caught in the disasters if they tarry until that hour, if, if that's in our lifetime, Lord, we can't imagine the horrors of how many will perish under the deception and the delusion of Satan and under divine and demonic judgments. Lord, rescue souls today by having them put their trust in Christ and be safe from all these things. We know Your church will be raptured even before anything begins, anything begins. And yes, Lord, we understand that even the worst of times will also be a time when You will begin again to gather a people to Yourself to live forever in heaven and praise and glorify You. 
We thank You, Lord, that You are a God who redeems through all the eras of history. We pray for Your own glory that You would redeem sinners even today in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 21. This of course is the chapter in which Luke records our Lord's instruction regarding His return. This is Jesus' own teaching on His second coming, the great culmination of human history the end of the age, the return of Christ in glory, to judge the ungodly and to establish His glorious kingdom on earth for a thousand years after which this entire universe as we know it is destroyed and replaced by the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal dwelling place of the holy and those made righteous in Christ. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is the next great event in the work of Christ. He is currently in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over His spiritual kingdom of those who belong to Him through faith in the gospel. He is their great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for them. He secures them unto eternal glory. He hears and answers their prayers and gives them all things consistent with His will and His promise. But He is coming back. The Bible says He will return to earth visibly so that the whole world will see Him. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. He will change the configuration of that land according to the Old Testament prophet. The land itself will split open, water will come gushing out and create a river that flows down from Jerusalem into the desert. This will launch the beginning of a restored, renovated planet which will be paradise regained as John Milton put it. It is a glorious thing to think of Christ returning. It is also a frightening thing because He comes not only to establish His kingdom for those who belong to Him, but He comes to judge the ungodly in a horrific judgment which will catapult them all forever into the lake of fire. That's why John said contemplation of this caused both sweetness and bitterness. He says that in regard to the vision He had in the tenth chapter of Revelation. When we think about then the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have those same bitter, sweet emotions, sweet for the glory of Christ, sweet for those who belong to Him, horribly bitter for those who do not. It is important for us to concentrate on what the Bible says about the return of Christ, and it says a lot. Jesus during His ministry was asked many questions. A small fraction of those questions are recorded in the New Testament. Of all the questions recorded in the New Testament, 
The question about what is the sign of Your coming and the end of the age, what should, be we lo- what should we be looking for and when will it happen, those questions offered to Jesus by His own disciples sitting on the Mount of Olives on Wednesday night of Passion Week got the longest answer of any questions He was ever asked. In fact, the full answer recorded in Scripture takes up Luke 21, Mark 13, and in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. If you want the full answer that is recorded in Scripture, you have to consider all of those chapters. We're looking at one, that being Luke 21 in our ongoing look at Luke's gospel. This is part 10 of our discussion of this passage. Now. You could do this whole chapter in one message or three or five or any number or fifty for that matter, which we will not do. But it behooves us to take time and go carefully. Slower is better than faster. Deeper is better than shallower. And comprehension is better than confusion. And in order to understand this, we have to take our time. Having said that, it is still a challenge. Because we're looking at one chapter on the second coming of Jesus Christ and looking at only one expression of the details connected with that, and the Bible has so many of them. The Old Testament has many passages that tell us details concerning the period around the return of the Messiah. Isaiah wrote about it. Jeremiah wrote about it. Ezekiel wrote about it. Daniel wrote about it. Zechariah wrote about it, Joel wrote about it, and there are others. There are references to the reign of the coming Messiah in the Psalms and allusions to it even in the book of Genesis, the law of Moses. This is a vast subject because this is the culmination of all of redemptive history, and God has said much about it. Coming into the New Testament, you have not only the passages that I mentioned to you in Matthew, Mark, and here in Luke, but you have references to the return of Jesus Christ in many of the epistles as well. Paul spoke often of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wrote of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. John wrote of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and we seeing Him face to face. Jude wrote about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the book of Revelation is all about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm saying all of that because every week after I give one of these lessons, folks will come to me and say, but I don't understand this and I don't understand that, and that leads me to ask this question and that question, and I just want you to know I feel your pain. I understand that. I know that for every question that is raised here and every suggested understanding and answer that I give you, myriad other questions are raised. So your assignment is to find all the other passages that speak on this subject in the Bible and master them. (laughs) And when you've done that, you'll have it all set. Now I want to help you a little bit with that, so I've written a book called The Second Coming. Have you seen that? It's out in a new form in a new cover. It's the second coming of the second coming book, Uh, and you can get it in the bookstore. And it'll look at the main issues related to the return of Jesus Christ. It'll help you because it looks at them categorically. 
And then we put together a special edition of the Revelation commentary so you wouldn't have to read through 700 pages. And it's called, Because the Time is Near, and it's condensed explanation of the book of Revelation verse by verse by verse, which will always connect that book back to the salient Old Testament texts and even the salient New Testament texts. So I would just encourage you to get those other resources to expand your understanding. And I would also say this to you, I've been studying uh, prophetic literature all of my adult life, certainly all of my ministry life. And there are still wonders and elements that I don't fully grasp. And so it becomes one of the most wondrous, one of the most elevating studies that you'll ever do in the Scripture, and I commend it to you. But it will take a little effort because there's much to understand. There also is much detail to understand. The, the future is not painted in big, broad brushes. It is painted with a very fine brush in very careful detail, which you will find in these passages that I have commended to you. Now let me back up from talking about that for just a minute and say to you that today what I want to do is pick up some of the pieces from what we looked at last time concerning verses 20 to 24. Uh, people came to me after the last message and said, uh, well, what about this and what about that and I'm not sure I understand this and what are the implications of that? And one person even came to me and said, I think you're just making this up as you go. It doesn't seem to make sense to me at all. So I want to take another look at verses 20 to 24, and uh, maybe you'll know I'm not making it up when I'm done, and maybe it'll make a little more sense to you. I hope so, because this is the true Word of God, and you need to know it because it will bless and encourage your heart. So let's look back at Luke 21 and verses 20 to 24. I'm not going to review any of the prior things that we've discussed at great length. Just pick it up at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days, for there will be great distress or great tribulation upon the earth or the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled." Now this is very, very specific prophecy which is consistent with Old Testament and New Testament prophetic literature. It is very specific, very specific. Now backing up from that. I, I want to point out something to you that is very important. God has staked His own reputation on His ability to pre predict the future accurately, okay? God has established His own integrity on the basis that He predicts the future accurately. If you can prove that something predicted in the Bible did not happen as predicted, then you can prove that God is not the God of the Bible and the Bible is not true. Skeptics have been trying to do this throughout all history. Never have they succeeded, not one time. 
because God is God and God is omniscient and God only not only knows history, He not only knows what's going to happen, He makes it happen. It is His story. Now to understand how important this is, I want you to go back with me to an important portion of the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, and we'll get a little bit of a running start on our text, and then I'll try to help you further understand the text that I read. But go back to Isaiah 41, and I want you to see what's at stake here. God always is dealing with the people of Israel through the prophets with regard to their apostatizing, their defecting, their rebelling, their disobedience, and most particularly their penchant for idolatry. They were always seduced and lured away to worship idols. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah here, is calling them back from their idolatry. And He defends Himself as the only true God and the only one to be worshiped because He is the only one who can predict the future. That proves that He is the transcendent and true God. No creature knows the future. No demon knows the future, not even Satan himself. No angel knows the future by any supernatural means. No human knows the future. The only one who knows the future is God, and the only thing creatures know about the future is what God has said. But apart from the revelation of God, no one knows the future. There is no astrologer, there is no horoscope, there is no medium, there is no angelic contact. There is no one who knows your future or anybody's future or anything about the future. No one. Horoscopes, fortune tellers, stargazers, etc., etc., are a hoax. No one knows the future but God. And God says that that is the proof that He is God. Notice in Isaiah 41, 13, I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. And he's comparing himself with these ridiculous idols that they are worshiping. Verse 14, do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And the context here is why in the world are you going after these non-gods in the form of idols. I am the Lord your God. If you go down to verse 21, He asks those who have gone after idols to present a case for their defection. He calls them, as it were, into His court and says, show me why these idols are worthy of your trust. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Here's his argument.
You say they are supernatural. You say they are divine. You say they are real gods. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. Let them tell the future. Verse 23, end of verse 22, or announce to us what is coming. Declare, verse 23, the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that You are God's. Turn to chapter 44. This whole chapter is about the stupidity of worshiping an idol, carving an idol out of wood. But in verse 6, "'Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel,' 44, 6, "'and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last.'" That's a way of saying I'm everything in between. "'There is no God besides Me.'" And who is like Me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to Me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place." Again, the challenge to anyone who claims to be God or anyone who claims to be worshiping a God, let that God tell the future. In chapter 45, verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker, His Fashioner, His Creator, speaking of Israel, ask Me about the things to come. Ask Me about the things to come. That's God putting His reputation on the line in His ability to tell the future. Go down to verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. This is not some kind of mysterious revelation that we have to find in dark places. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. This is, this is characteristic of God. God is a speaking God. He is by nature a revealing God. He doesn't hide anything. He reveals everything He wants us to know. So, verse 20, gather yourselves and come, draw me, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. This is the height of insanity. Declare and set forth your case. Step up in my court and defend your God. Who has announced this from of old? Who in the past predicted the present? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides Me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except Me. Turn to Me 
and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other." Why? Because He announced things from of old. He long ago declared things that were going to happen. And then one final text in chapter 46, again He's talking about comparing Himself with the gods that the people have followed. Verse 5, He says, "'To whom would you liken Me, and make Me equal, and compare Me, that we should be alike?' Then down in verse 9, "'Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like Me, declaring the end from the beginning." Which is to say, at the beginning, God tells us the ending. From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all My good pleasure. God knows the future because God controls the future. His purpose is being established. The end of verse 11, I have planned it, I will do it. So again, here God stakes His divine integrity and right to be worshiped on the fact that He alone knows the future because He alone determines the future. In the inspired prophecies of Scripture, then, is the test of God's character. In the inspired prophecy of Scripture is the test of God's truthfulness, veracity, omniscience. And history has verified that. The Old Testament is full of prophecies that God gave. The record of their fulfillment is also in the Old Testament. You can study the Old Testament, God says something's going to happen, and it happens. And sometimes specifically naming the nation, the location, the city, and even the name of the person centuries before the person is ever born. Then of course in the Old Testament you have prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. At least three hundred of them were fulfilled the first time Jesus came, three hundred all the way to the cross. I'm in the middle of writing the second volume commentary on the gospel of John and going through the prophecies that are fulfilled on, on the cross. Every tiny detail of Jesus' experience on the cross can be connected directly to an Old Testament passage. Every detail fulfilled at the cross in the resurrection. And there are many more prophecies, Old Testament ones and New Testament ones, and some right out of the mouth of Jesus concerning His second coming that must be believed because all that God has said has been proven true if those prophecies have met their moment in history. When the Scripture speaks concerning the future, it is accurate accurate. There have been an endless line of non-believing skeptics 
who have failed to break the Scripture. It is proven true. So when you come to Luke 21, the truthfulness of God is at stake. The truthfulness of Christ is at stake. He's talking about the future. He's not talking about it in broad brushes. He's not talking about it in vague generalities. He's talking about it in very specific things. Can we know that what He said there is true? Sure. Back in verse 8, He said, uh, in the future, before My return, there will be people claiming to be Messiah, claiming that uh, the time for the kingdom is at hand. What He's introducing here, and He says more about it in this speech as Matthew records later. What He's talking about is deception. Remember that? False forms of Christianity will flourish and lead people astray. Did that come to pass? Sure. You can open your eyes and look in any direction today and you can see that there's more false Christianity than true Christianity. There are more false Christians than true Christians. There are more false prophets than true prophets. There is more false gospel than true gospel in the name of Christianity. He said it would happen and it did. He also spoke of disasters, wars and disturbances, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That defines human history, one long saga of conflict at every imaginable level. He talked about great earthquakes. That has happened and continues to escalate. Plagues, famines, terrors, which would encompass anything that hasn't specifically been named yet. Signs in the heaven, hurricanes, tornadoes, you name it, and all the resultant chaos and havoc produced by these kinds of catastrophic natural events. On top of that, He talked about persecution, didn't He, starting in verse 12, how that the people who belong to Christ will be persecuted through human history and some number, the number as high as 70 million professed Christians have been martyred since Jesus said these words. Look at history. And we've been doing that in the last number of weeks and see what He said is exactly the way the world is, exactly. But now as you get to verse 20, it gets much more specific because they're asking the question, if you go back to the query that started all of this in verse 7, what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? What will be the sign? What one thing can we look for? Not this, this era of events which do not immediately precede His coming because He says that in verse 9. It will not happen immediately after you see these things. They're going to go on for a long time. Here we are 2,000 years later. But what is the sign? What can we look for and know that this precedes immediately your return? And He says it in verse 20. Here's what you need to know. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. You say, well, that could describe just about any time in Israel's history. That happened in 70 A.D. Does it refer to that? No. That has happened many, many other times through Israel's history. We went through those last time. But this is talking about something that is at a terminus point, that is the final desolation of Jerusalem from every other attack and assault by enemies Israel has recovered been revived, survived. But there is coming on Israel a final 
desolation. We know it's final because verse 22 further describes it in these words, these are the days of vengeance. The Old Testament says the vengeance of our God. This is final divine vengeance on an apostate religious system, a revived last days Judaism. Further, verse 22 says, for the purpose that all things which are written may be fulfilled. This is the consummation of everything. The language there is talking about the vengeance of God, an Old Testament term that's equal to the day of the Lord, the final eschatological judgment of God that fulfills everything. So this looks forward to some time in the future when Jerusalem will be assaulted and become desolate in a final sense, under the vengeance of God for the purpose of the fulfillment of all that has been written. We looked at that last time, and I told you that Matthew gives us further words of Jesus. Jesus said, this event, the surrounding by the armies, will lead to what Daniel called the abomination of desolation. Same word, desolation but it will be triggered by what is called the abomination of desolation. Daniel refers to it three times, chapter 9, chapter 11, and chapter 12. This event will trigger the worst time the world has ever known, just three and a half years prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Daniel wrote of it. Daniel 12.1, there will be a time of tribulation such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Our Lord reiterated that in Matthew 24.21 on this same occasion, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be, really echoing the words of Daniel. Daniel 12 looks at the end time. And before the establishment of the kingdom at the end, there will be a time of horror coming upon the world that Daniel calls a time of tribulation. Jesus says it's a time of great tribulation. And so this time of great tribulation, our Lord here is saying, is triggered by Jerusalem being attacked and assaulted. Now remember what I told you. These are the nations of the world who have gathered in the future under the leadership of the final Antichrist, the beast as He's called in Revelation, and they have gathered around Jerusalem to assault Jerusalem and attack the people who are the Jews. They are such a massive force that they stretch from the city of Jerusalem all the way north, 60, 70 miles, to the valley of Megiddo and the plain of Megiddo where the battle and the conflagration is known as the battle of Armageddon. All these enemies of Israel collected from around the world surrounding Jerusalem. This has a purpose, does it? Yes, Scripture's clear about it. Zechariah 13, as I pointed out, verses 8 and following, says the purpose of this is to bring judgment on the unbelieving people in Israel, the Jews who at that time will not have embraced the gospel. They will be judged. This is God's day of vengeance even though He uses 
Antichrist and his forces, world forces, anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish forces, anti-Christian, anti-Christ forces as well. But it will be a judgment on Israel. Zechariah 13 says that two out of every three Jews will be purged. The rebels will be purged out and the rest will be saved. In Jeremiah 30, verses 1 to 8, Jeremiah says the same thing. There will be a time of purging judgment on Israel, but a remnant will be saved. So Antichrist operates only within the framework of God's power. Antichrist, a demon-possessed, Satan-possessed world leader, leads the forces of the world to assault Jerusalem. They are trying to thwart the purposes of God because Satan wants to destroy all the Jews so there will be none to enter into the kingdom which has been prophesied, and Satan knows that prophecy. And so he wants to wipe out, it's an, it's an effort at genocide, to slaughter all the Jews. God protects the remnant that belong to Him. In fact, He protects them out in the wilderness for the period of Antichrist's reign of terror for the last three and a half years so that they can, who believe in Him, enter into the kingdom that long ago was promised to them. So it has the purpose of judging Jewish unbelievers as well as manifesting the true believers in Messiah who are protected and preserved. It is a period in which Antichrist has a reign of terror over the whole world. It is also a period when the gospel is being preached. 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from every tribe have come to faith in Jesus Christ and been preaching the gospel everywhere. The gospel is being preached in the sky by an angel is flying through the sky in some way that we can't even imagine. People were being saved from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Revelation tells us during that period of time the greatest revival in human history will take place as God gathers in the final element of His elect people. Many of them, most of them perhaps will be slaughtered and they are seen in heaven, those who've come out of the great tribulation having had their garments washed but they've been martyred by the Antichrist. So He will slaughter believers wherever He can find them around the world. He will assault Jerusalem in an effort to create genocide so there are no Jews to go into the kingdom, thus thwarting the plan of God. Now Daniel tells us about this event. Let's go to Daniel 12 and I want you to see how specific this is. I just read you verse 1, there will be a time of tribulation such as has never occurred, the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21. But I want you to go down just to get a little more of the information to verse 7. And this is so interesting. And I heard the man dressed in linen, there's an, there's an angel who appears in this particular vision. And um, this, this angelic visitor is above the waters of the river. He raises his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swears by Him who lives forever. Here is an angel who swears that what he's going to say is the truth of God. Here's what he says. This judgment, back in verse 1, this time of tribulation that has never occurred before, would be for a time times and half a time. It's going to last 
time, that's one. Times, that's two. Add one to two, that's three. Half a time is three and a half. Specifically, this lasts for three and a half years. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Just three and a half years in which Antichrist goes after Jews. I've been to Yad Hashmanah, the Museum of Remembrance of the Holocaust in Israel. I've been to the really incredible one in Washington, D.C. And always they tell you, we want the world to remember so it never happens again. Well, we do remember, but it will happen again. It will happen again under the vengeance of God against those who reject the Messiah. Jews who die today without the Messiah perish in hell, just like Gentiles who die without Christ. And in the future, when the divine judgment falls upon the whole world of unbelievers, it will fall upon the Jewish unbelievers as well. It will be a holocaust. And the agent of that purging, according to Zechariah, is going to be this great force led by Antichrist that comes against Israel. God used, by the way, pagan nations in the past as His instruments of judgment, didn't He, on Israel, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Syrians, and others. But it will be a time, times, and half a time, says Daniel, three and a half years. Now just to show you how consistent this is, turn in the book of Revelation for a moment. In the book of Revelation to chapter 11, chapter 11. It starts out in chapter 11 with a, a vision of a measuring rod used to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Well, it seems to be this is being measured out for a purpose. Verse 2, it says, it's been given to the nations. The Jews will reestablish their temple. They will reestablish their system of worship, but it will be measured out as it were by God for judgment and given to the nations. And the nations that surround Jerusalem, that come against it, that time of tribulation of Daniel 12, those nations are going to overrun Jerusalem. They're going to bring desolation to Jerusalem and Israel, and they will tread underfoot the holy city, verse 2, for how long? Forty-two months. That's three and a half years. Three and a half years consistent. Verse 3 adds that this will be 1260 days. 1260 days is three and a half years when you count 360 day years. Turn to chapter 12 and verse 6. Here's a picture of the woman. The woman is Israel. In this imagery, the woman is Israel. She gave birth to the Son, who is the Messiah. But the woman, who is Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. The remnant that, that survive, that belong to God, that He's protecting to go into His kingdom on earth alive, He will preserve. This remnant of Jews will flee into the wilderness 
where there is a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days, three and a half years. So while the three and a half years of terror goes on in Jerusalem, the remnant is protected for the same period of time by God in another place. Go down to verse 14, and the language is exactly the language of Daniel 12. Two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. This remnant, how are they going to get out of Jerusalem when the Antichrist comes? How are they going to flee? The Lord's going to take them to a prepared place. How? Two wings of the great eagle. Is that an angel? Perhaps an angelic deliverance. It's going to be a period of supernatural activity, so it's not a, hard to imagine that. But wherever they're going in the place that God's going to protect them in the wilderness, this remnant called she, because the woman pictures the remnant, is nourished for, here's the language of Daniel, time, times, time one, times two, half a time, three and a half from the presence of the serpent. Serpent is Satan. Satan through the Antichrist goes after Israel. God uses them as an agent of judgment. Two-thirds of the rebels are purged, out, judged, one-third protected, redeemed, carried by God protected for the same duration of time as Jerusalem is trampled underfoot. One more passage that is worthy of our brief look is Revelation 13 and verse 5. All of this, of course, is under the dragon. Verse 4, they worship the dragon who is Satan, who gave authority to the beast, who is the Antichrist. And there was given to him, this Antichrist, a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him." Again, the language is crystal clear. The time, whether you're talking forty-two months, twelve hundred and sixty days, time, times, and half a time, it all comes out to three and a half years. When you see Jerusalem surrounded, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which is the Antichrist goes into the holy place and on the very altar where God is worshipped sets up an image of Himself, according to Revelation 13, according to 2 Thessalonians 3, He causes the whole world to worship Him, starting a new religion, the worship of this great world leader who is possessed by Satan. That is the desecration. That is the abomination that launches the desolation against Israel. It is judgment on unbelievers, but it is the purging out of the true believers who are then rescued and kept safe for that period of time so that they can go into the kingdom. The gospel will continue to be preached during that time by two witnesses, according to chapter 11, who die in front of the whole world. The whole world will see them. It can only happen in a world where there's satellite television. Uh, three and a half days later, symbolically, they will rise from the dead in front of everyone. And this will launch a revival of salvation in Jerusalem, so it probably happens right at that very initial point. The people in Jerusalem are going to be terrified and then they're going to give glory to the true God. Now go back for a moment to Daniel chapter 12 because there's more specificity here.
We're talking about the end time, folks, and that's clear from verse 9, Daniel 12, 9. Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. This is talking about the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined. We said that, right? There's going to be a real purging, the remnant. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. The, the people who belong to God, the people who believe the gospel, Jew and Gentile, they're going to understand because the Word is written. They can look at the Bible. The people living at that time will sort it out. The rest will not. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, that's the abomination of desolations. The Jews will have a constituted temple. They will have their system going again of sacrifices. The Antichrist comes in, first three and a half years, he lets them have that. He makes a pact with them according to Daniel 9. He's their protector. Then he abominates that, goes in, desecrates the place, sets up an idol of himself. That is the abomination of desolation. This says, from then to the end. There will be 1,290 days. Oh, now we have 30 more days, 30 more days. Then verse 12 says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 335 days. There's one verse of hope in the middle of all of this. If you get to the 335 days, you're blessed, which means that all judgment is passed. All devastation is past. All the activity of Satan and Antichrist is past. You are now in the kingdom. So we conclude that there is a 75-day period, 30 to the 1290, 45 more to the 1335, that is laid out for us by the prophet with amazing specificity of transition between the desolation, disaster, the holocaust, when Christ comes, remember, at the very end He massacres the gathered forces of the Antichrist and all the ungodly across the earth are slain. The carnage is a, f is a feast for birds described in Revelation chapter 19. The dead bodies will be being buried. There's a seventy-five day period between the judgment that falls and the cleanup before the inauguration and initiation of the kingdom of Christ. You say, well then, you can know that it's near. Yes. You can't know the day or the hour. Remember Jesus said that? Nobody knows the day or the hour. But if you're alive at that time and you will be among those who understand and you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies and the abomination of desolation and you turn on your, your television and you see the two witnesses die and rise again, you'll know where you are. You may not know the day or the hour that He comes, but you will know that His coming is near. And that is indicated to us in this very passage in Luke as you look a little later in chapter 21 where Jesus says in verse 28, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. The people alive then will know that it is near. Some will repent. Some will believe the gospel from every tongue, tribe, people and nation. There will be a great revival among the Jews, great repentance. A third of them will be saved and protected and cared for. 
Some believing Jews perhaps martyred. Believing Gentiles massacred by the Antichrist all around the world and they end up in heaven. But once this happens, you know the end is very near. That's not the only sign. Verse 25 says there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and upon the earth. Dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is just what starts it. And then all heaven and earth begin to be devastated before the eyes of the watching world. So the people alive at that time are going to know when the coming of Christ is near. There's grace in that. That's the epitome of a warning system, isn't it? Talk about code red or orange or whatever. This is a very gracious warning to the people living at that time. And the gospel will be preached. Still, many will not believe. They will curse God. Many will believe and be saved and enter into the kingdom. For us, however, we believe that Scripture teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. And I'm not making it up. I'm not making it up. Three times in the New Testament, there's an event mentioned, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, that is called the catching away of the church. There's no judgment in any of those three passages. There's no description of wrath or vengeance. It simply talks about believers that are alive being taken to heaven and believers that are dead, their spirits already with the Lord, receiving glorified bodies coming out of the grave and joining with their glorified spirits. This is the rapture, the dead in Christ rise first, the rest caught into heaven. This event has nothing of judgment connected to it in any of the passages where it's described. It's a non-judgmental event. I believe the Bible is saying to us that before all of this breaks out on earth, the Lord gathers His church. Revelation 3.10 is testimony to this. Revelation 3.10, speaking to the church, particularly the church in Philadelphia, but all these letters are for all churches. Verse 10, this is our Lord speaking again. He says, "'Because you have kept the word of My steadfastness or perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth." This isn't some localized test. What is this hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world? It's the time of tribulation. And it begins to be discussed immediately after this. As immediately in chapter 4, you go to heaven and the divine judgment 
machinery of God starts to move. You will be kept from that hour, tereo ek, kept out, kept out, which again fits the picture of the church being gathered together. In Daniel's prophecy of history of Israel, he prophesies seventy weeks, seventy times seven years. The first sixty-nine ran from the decree of Artaxerxes until the triumphal entry of Jesus. There's one week left, one week of Israel's history. The church wasn't in the first sixty-nine. The church is not going to be in the seventieth. That's when God redeems Israel, then uses them to do what He's always wanted them to do, become a means by which His testimony is given to the world. The church is a unique group caught up and out before God finishes His work with Israel. However, when we all come to the New Jerusalem, the final state, we'll all be one bride with Christ. And that's, that's a subject that we'll talk further about, the rapture of the church. Now one closing thought or two. What does this say to us? Turn to Second uh, Peter 3 for a moment. There are just some exhortations as you think about the end time. Verse 11, Second Peter 3, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You, you certainly don't want to get caught in the destruction, right? So what kind of people should you be now that you know this is going to happen? You know the day of the Lord, the day of judgment is going to come like a thief. The heavens are going to pass away with a roar. Elements melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works are going to be burned up. You know that. Verse 12, the heavens will be destroyed by burning. The elements again melt with intense heat. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless and blameless. The only way you can be in peace, spotless and blameless is to be in Christ. And in verse 16, don't get led astray to your own destruction. Be on guard, verse 17. Don't, don't be carried away by the error of unprincipled men falling from your steadfastness, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Since we know the end, we know exactly what it's going to involve, now is the time to make sure that you've settled your eternity, that you're pursuing holiness and godliness, that you're pursuing a relationship of peace with God in which His righteousness is granted to you so that you are spotless and blameless in which you're not being deceived about the future. And there are so many liars out there and deceivers telling people wonderful stories of the blissful future that is not true. Who knows how long until all of this launches. The rapture of the church could happen at any moment and then it begins. We need to be growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel, pursuing godliness, that we might be sure that we'll be among those caught up before this all begins. And what do we do during that seven-year period before we come back with Him? Marriage Supper of the Lamb, we have a celebration with our Christ, and we go to the Bema Sea Judgment, receive rewards 
for what we've done for Him. We'll be enjoying the bliss of heavenly reward and fellowship with Christ while the earth is being devastated. So make sure you're ready for this, to be caught away with the saints, to be with the Lord. Father, we thank You for this future look. And even though it's limited as far as what we can convey, it's clear. We we know You stake Your reputation on it. Your integrity is bound up with the accuracy of every prophecy. So it will be the way You said it will be, exactly as You said. And just as Your Word has always been proven to be true and stood the test of all the assaults of all the skeptics at every level, it will continue to. And we will spend forever and ever in Your presence in the glory of heaven saying that the end was exactly what You said it would be. Since it is sure and true because You know it and You know it because this is how You've designed it, how important it is, Lord, that we escape wrath and escape judgment and come to Christ and to salvation and forgiveness and blessing and heaven. May that be the experience of those who are here now who have not yet come to Christ, not by works as we read earlier, but by trusting in Jesus Christ and His cross and resurrection. May we believe that our salvation is by faith in Him alone, not by any works of our own. Then we can be at peace and spotless and blameless before You because we are forgiven for Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. May sinners put their trust in Him, we pray. Father, closing this last moment or two, we, we would be urgent, pleading with people to make sure their hearts are right with You. This is not speculation. This is pre-written history. And so is eternal hell, and so is eternal heaven. We pray, Lord, that this would be a day of repentance and salvation. And bring into the prayer room those who need help, need someone to talk to. May it be a glorious day, we pray. Amen.